0: For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Well, thank you all. It's a delight to be here again. Lovely to see some familiar faces and some new ones. And our, uh, our guest in conversation this evening is uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, who is a, a cancer physician, uh, still sees patients, uh, you know, keeps his bedside manner brushed up, uh, and also runs a lab looking at stem cells, both of these at Columbia University in New York. <laughs> And, and Sid is also a writer, as some of you all know. So his, his book *The Emperor of All Maladies* uh, was on *Time*'s uh, list of 100 most important books ever written. Uh, so no pressure there. And um, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. And also, as we were discussing uh, just earlier, also won the Guardian First Book Prize, which I think is a is a good accolade uh, for a book uh, prize that crosses over between uh, literature. Uh, and scientific and factual books. So we're delighted to have Sid along. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll chat between us. Uh, we hope you'll pay attention for a little while. There'll be time for questions in the second half. Um, and it, it's not, we're not going to give you a tutorial. There's no whiteboard. We haven't brought any PowerPoint. But I did think it was worth, at least to begin with, if you don't mind, Sid, reviewing some of the basic facts about this stuff because, you know, just to sort of level the playing field out. And I'm going to ask what Let I... Let me begin by <laughs> asking you... Yes.
1: Ian Fleming yes. or John Le Carré?
0: Ian Fleming. Uh, you're asking me, Ian Fleming or John Le Carré? I'm going to answer you, John Le Carre. Better on love, uh, <laughs> okay. in my view. And you, Ian Fleming. Very good. Well, so it begins. I'm <laughs> not sure which way the house went on that one. Right. So, um, you, you, in this lovely book that you've uh, written and will be signing afterwards, the Gene and in Intimate History, you talk about the gene, the atom, and the bite. As being with a Y as being the, the fundamental units uh, you know, of, of the contemporary world. We'll leave uh, bytes and atoms aside for the moment, so I think we'll return to both of them a little bit later. Um, but can I ask what I think is probably a deceptively simple question, Sid? Uh, can you just explain to us briefly what a gene is? Would you mind? <laughs>
1: if that's um, not too... No.
0: You know, we have an hour and a
1: half. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a full description... Um, really merits longer than we have. Uh, in brief, the gene is a unit of hereditary information. Um, that sounds rather abstract. Let me put it in a, very concrete, in a very concrete way. It is the unit of information that you transmit to your children. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it a unit because it's indivisible, you can't break it up into smaller parts. It is transmitted whole, generally speaking, although it can acquire... It can be swapped around with other... with its sister genes, et cetera. But really, it's transmitted whole mm-hmm. to, your, to your children. And it determines some aspect of your children's physiology or appearance or fate or future. Um, it, there are many, many other things. There are many other properties of genes uh, by which they're defined... Mm-hmm but this for, for this audience for this sort of discussion I think that's where probably the, the, the discussion should begin. Okay.
0: And a couple of things about that definition, which I think are already interesting. We've talked about the atom and the bite, which I said we wouldn't decompose and come back to, but we will immediately. They also have constituent parts, and we'll be talking about DNA right. and stuff like that. But but I wonder if you can just expand briefly on this notion of it's being indivisible. I think that's the word you used, of it's being unitary. What do you mean by a gene being unitary, given that it's made up of these letters and the codes and things we'll talk about later?
1: Right. So a gene, as, as many of us know, is made up of... It's, it's, it has a chemical form. It's made up of a, um, a string of um, nucleotides, A C T G. And if one. you were a gene, if you were to look at a gene or to read a gene, it would look it would read like A C T G C C T G G C C T T G G G etc, cetera. Et cetera. Um, if you take the entire human genome, ACTG, etc., that would be about three billion odd. A C T Gs. Okay. Now, from th- that information is obviously inscrutable to you and me for the most part. It's just letters. Just yeah. letters. Four letters repeated yeah. over and over again. And yet, if you put those four letters into an embryonic cell mm-hmm. uh, in the form of this chemical divided into 23 chromosomes, that embryonic cell, astonishingly, can build you and me with our commonalities, the fact that we have one nose. And ten fingers, and our differences—the mm-hmm. fact that you and I don't resemble each other—you like the carrier, I <laughs> <Yeah, or> like <laughs> Fleming. Fundamentally, <laughs> it's so fundamental so. division. There is a gene for yeah. that. Not yeah. <laughs> Um, um yeah. But but fundamental differences between you and me, and the variation that we see in ourselves. If you change five letters, ten letters, twenty-five letters, some repeat somewhere in that mm. sixty-six volume mm. set of the encyclop- sixty-six set of the encyclopedia. Mm you could f- fall, become a victim to a deadly disease like Huntington's disease. If you had another variation, you could fall, you know, you could fall prey to cystic fibrosis.
0: I still want to press you, though, on this what is a gene thing. Oh, yeah, go so, back, yes, so- yes, yes. Um, and I'm asking this as, you know, as a humble neuroscientist, therefore like most of you, not somebody who gets genetics, who understands this stuff. So here's the question I've got for you. When you're outside a domain, it's impossible to know which things inside the domain are contested and yes. which things everyone agrees on. Yes. So if I lined up three geneticists... Would you all agree on the definition of a gene? And that would be a dull question, and you just want to move on to the interesting stuff. Or is the question of what a gene is, the definition of a gene, is that still an interesting question for you guys? Is it something that's dynamic, that's changing over recent time? Is it contested? And the answer
1: is that um, the answer is that they would. Mo- three geneticists in the room would agree largely on what a gene is. Okay. They would have some disagreement about how things are evolving. There are new information coming out of a gene Mm -hmm. that that is coming out over time. So Mm -hmm. they would agree that it's a unit of heredity, Mm -hmm. that it specifies information, specifies specifies information about physiology or anatomy or some important characteristic of of information, biological information. A gene need not be a continuous stretch (coughs) of DNA. In you know 50 years ago, if you asked them, well, does a gene need to be one long stretch of DNA? Most people would say yes. We now know that's not true for most genes. In fact, they're broken up into into sort of little entities, and they get um, they get stitched up together uh, when they actually uh, perform their function. Um, does one gene have to specify a single <coughs> function? No, it can specify multiple functions. Does one function have to have one gene attached to it? No. One function can be the product of any genes, so there would be disagreements around these kinds of questions. Mm. But the idea that a gene is a specifies a unit of information, however that information is used subsequently in the physiology or the or the anatomy or the body of the individual would be generally agreed upon and then again I mean you know the book is lovely
0: I enjoyed reading it enormously uh, it's historical in yes. part and we're not going to review I and mean, we've got enough trouble right getting the basic facts out. we're not going to do the history of it but can I to, to give you an analogy if we think about what an electron is right so yes. many of us all remember the Bohr atom from school which was like a sun and planets model you had the nucleus and the electrons whizzing around it and nowadays we think in quantum mechanics of fields of probability That's so right. in contemporary physics there's no way of describing uh, an electron as a little ball that whizzes around the bigger That's ball right. there's no balls and something but the electron is the same electron right you know through the history of physics in the 20th century 21st century there's still an electron it's the same thing we just described it in different terms has it been the same thing this gene through the recent history of genetics or has our understanding of what this thing is changed in the last 50 100 years
1: so the, the, the our understanding of the word gene as a unit of heredity has not changed good That's important. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of what a gene does, Mm -hmm. how a gene acts, how it becomes functionally realized, Mm -hmm. how it intersects with other genes to produce the complexities of human anatomy and physiology, that has changed Mm -hmm. and will keep changing. Um, You know, the analogy that I give to um, is, is to the word encyclopedia, right? Everyone here knows what an encyclopedia is. We know exactly what an encyclopedia is. We know what an encyclopedia does. For the younger among you, it's like Wikipedia, but it's written down. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, if I were to ask you how an encyclopedia works, how an encyclopedia has, is updated in time, people would say, well, that's been changing. These days, we update encyclopedias in a different way than we updated encyclopedias 20 years ago. In fact, if you look under the entry encyclopedia in an encyclopedia... That keeps changing right. because of that reason, right? Okay. So there's, a, there's an internal recursion about it. Genes are a little bit like that. We know what genes are at a fundamental level. We know that they transmit hereditary information from, from cell to cell and from parent to offspring. But the exact way that the information is encoded, what exactly it does keeps changing. Mm-hmm. How much it engages, what it engages with, keeps changing. Mm-hmm. So a simple way to think about it is, you know, a generally speaking, genes produce messages. Um, genes can be of, have been often likened to a kind of hard copy. They produce a soft copy of message called RNA. It's usually the only way that a gene can exert its activity. The RNA itself has some functions, but it also produces... Uh, as a consequence of uh, other biological processes produces a thing called a protein proteins are the basis of are the, are the machines of life um, our hair is a particular color because of a protein our noses are built of proteins and interacting with other molecules etc so proteins are kind of the workhorses of biological life genes essentially produce the uh, carry the code to produce messages, RNAs, which ultimately produce proteins. And this sort of information cycle allows the existence of, the creation of, the maintenance of, the building of, and the repair of human bodies so it's interesting so i think we're getting the sense that
0: the gene is you know it's, it's not complete agreement between three geneticists in a row but you kind of agree what it you is kind of agree what it is and, exactly it pre- right. and it's we've it's kind of meant the same thing for quite a while it let's has. say hundred and something years and and in fact that hundred years of course predates uh, dna yes. which we've all heard of so weirdly the thing of which genes are made yes. was discovered after we knew what they were Right. If that makes sense. So tell us about how could that be? How could we have a thing which we didn't know what it was made of? And, and you know, tell us about that relationship, if you like, between the DNA... It's a very with, important
1: uh, question. And, ...and the gene it, it comprises. It's a very important question. I'm going to talk about it historically and then give an analogy. Historically speaking, and it's very, very important to, to, to understand this, the gene was visualised abs- as an abstraction before anyone knew its chemical or physical form. Because, of course, you can see that traits or features or characteristics are moving between generations. So you share your mum's nose or... Exactly. Even Aristotle knew that, that in fact there was something about information that was moving, and he really thought about it as information. He was Mm -hmm. one of the first people... It's an astonishing idea that Aristotle thought about... um, You know, there's a famous quote, I think Max Perutz said... Aristotle should have been given the Nobel Prize for the discovery of genes because <laughs> he really thought about it in an informational way. He thought that there's got to be information that's moving, and he recognized that occasionally that information can go away and come back. So a grandparent could, could transmit a, the risk of a disease to a grandchild without the parent having that disease apparently. When you think about that... Aristotle had clocked that. That's cool. That's right. So if you think about that very thoughtfully, Mm -hmm. you've got to conclude that it's indivisible because it didn't go away with the mother or the parent it's got something remained that across generations, two generations, and then propped up again or cropped again. So, By the way, just to be clear, that, that's so important, isn't it? Because the
0: indivisibility of the gene, which you said, would be weird given that it's made up of all these letters. Why can't you? But that's the fact right. that it get, can get passed on means that there's something kind of unitary that's right, about that it. That
1: there is something, there's something that is yeah. transmitted, holds. So, so, and it was, um, and you know, it's one of the most striking intellectuals of our time, striking scholars of our time, who failed virtually all his exams, gives us a lot of hope, who failed all his exams was this, this monk uh, working in a small town in now the Czech Republic, called in Bruno, named Gregor Mendel, began to study systematically this idea. What, what is it? How is it that this characteristic moves from one organism down one generation to the next. And Mendel's discovery, which was astonishing for its time, was that when he tracked it, it really behaved in this indivisible manner, much like others had hypothesized, that it didn't get broken up, that when, when, it, when he watched the movement through peas, he could almost abstract it as a particle as something that was a physical particle. He didn't know what it was made of. Mm -hmm. He had no idea. But think about, put yourself in Mendel's shoes for a second. And this is what I, this is one of the things that I particularly love to do. Think of yourself, you know, you're a monk in an Augustinian abbey. You believe that God made everything and you believe, you're forced to believe, you like to believe that this is how organisms arise. Organisms arise because some kind of seed is laid and they, a kind of divine decree allows you to sort of flower into this, into five hands and... Mm -hmm. Sorry, five fingers in each hand, and... We'll come on to the modification thing later. Exactly. (laughs) Five hands would be very nice. Um, So there you are, and all of a sudden, based on simple experiments on peas, you begin to realize that, in fact, information is moving. That things are not what they appear. In fact, across every generation... The reason that the pea plant acquires a purple flower versus a white flower Mm -hmm. is because something has passed on almost like a physical particle of information. And I I liken this in the book to kind of a whisper. Someone has said to the embryo, you have got to produce a pink flower or a purple flower versus a white flower. And that whisper, that idea, that atom of information... Mm -hmm then moves on to the next generation, yeah. in undivided.
0: So, look, I'm going to do something really, really awful at this point, which is I'm going to sort of gymnastically leap over uh, Crick, okay, Jim Watson, love to leapfrog Watson, um, uh, nod at Rosalind Franklin, and uh, take it as read that we it's all know the, dis- <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the structure, beautifully rendered on the screens around us, the, the double helix, and that's the DNA, the four letters that you've talked about that encode. And before we get to the kind of the questions that I think we all need to be wrestling with, and you certainly argue we need to be wrestling with in contemporary society, there are two little bits of recent progress, which I'd like you to talk us through briefly. Yes. Um, one is this gene editing thing, or CRISPR, as it's known, yeah. and I would like you to do a little little bit on epigenetics, for us, because I think these are two things which even those of us who consider ourselves to be re- fairly well versed in the gene thing would like a little bit more on. And then we'll come to how scared should we be? What are we going to do next? Uh, and, and, and so on. Right. So, could, would you
1: mind giving us Not those still? two, in, in, yeah. if, if you'd agree? Thank you. So, CRISPR S- or something. If so, you don't mind. I, I will talk about three things. Please. Actually, I, I'll just add to this the idea of prenatal genetic diagnosis. That would be great. Okay, so prenatal genetic diagnosis, CRISPR. Mm-hmm. And epigenetics. Yeah, just so you know where we're going, guys. Once we got those down, we'll do the rules. Okay, so there. you know what a gene is now approximately. It's carried in DNA, this molecule, which it only coils that way. It doesn't coil this way, if that makes any sense mm-hmm. to you. Anyway, yep. so, so if you were to think about that thing that's up on the stage, it actually helps mm-hmm. as, a, as, as a gene. It would be, as I said, in DNA. and would have ACTG, CCTG, et cetera, et cetera, coiled along its coils. Its opposite strand, the mirror image, would be a mirror image of that um, in, a different, in a different chemical form. We don't need to worry about that. Okay. In that code would be the code for... One gene could code for... Could interact with four other genes and code for the shape of your nose. About seven genes, on we now know, intersect with each other and approximately have interact with the environment and produce height. Okay. They're at least seven or eight. About 10 or 15 interact with each other and interact with the environment and produce the color of your skin, and so forth. Okay. Some of them are very unitary. Some of them, only one gene drives one feature or appearance. They're rare. They're generally rare. Most of the other ones sort of talk to each other and act like machines, molecular machines, that will ultimately result in okay. anatomy, physiology, etc. Okay, so that's that's step number one. We know that. Now, what does CRISPR allow you to do? CRISPR is a molecular machine borrowed from the bacterial world which allows you to go into that DNA sequence, that long stretch of A, C, T, and G, and switch, deliberately switch, one part of the code and replace it potentially with some additional modifications, replace it with a different code. CRISPR is actually a pair of scissors. There's nothing more fancy about it. It's a pair of scissors. It's a pair of scissors that recognizes one particular sequence in the human genome and clips the human genome, or any genome, it doesn't have to be human, clips the human genome or any genome at that sequence. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, when I say one particular sequence, what I'm really thinking about is, go back again to your 66 full sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. What CRISPR does is it scans... All those 66 sets mm-hmm. and says on page 742, line 7, para 4, it reads ACGGT. I'm going to make a cut in that line. Mm-hmm. And then there are natural processes in the human cells, in human cells which will try to replace that information. Yep. And when you replace that information, you can switch it to a different kind of information. So in other words, you could therefore go into the 66 volume, pick out volume 7, mm-hmm. go to page 746, pick page line 1, and say I'm going to replace ACTGCCT for ACTTCCT. Mm-hmm. That's what CRISPR allows you to do. And just two quick questions on CRISPR, and we're going to have to go through this quite
0: fast because you know, there's, there's like the future of humanity to get to. But you know, on, on the, how surprising is that? So for, you, know, you know when somebody tells you a story and you're not sure whether you should go ooh or not, right? So as, as a geneticist, is that really new and really cool? Like if someone had told you 10 years ago that was going to be possible, would you we, believe them?
1: as geneticists, as cancer biologists, we had been dreaming of this technology for now six decades. Okay people had been dreaming of a technology that would allow you to basically go into the human genome, recognize one part of it, and change it. And there was no one had imagined that anywhere in the world you would find this technology. And it was hidden. It was hidden because, and I'll tell you, it's a lovely story. Mm -hmm. I'll go through it quickly, but it's really worth knowing. It was hidden because in the bacterial world, in the microbiological world, Mm -hmm. the competition for survival is so stiff that bacteria evolved. He didn't know about it. But bacteria evolved a mechanism of delivering lethal hits to viruses that invade them. And the way they deliver these hits is to cut up the DNA of these viruses. And bacteria, because of the evolutionary pressures, it had to be cut up in one particular place. Otherwise, they would destroy themselves, their own DNA, or they would destroy the wrong DNA. Okay. So basically bacteria evolved, unbeknownst to us, this pair of molecular scissors that would recognize, as I said, one piece of DNA, one sequence of DNA in a, hit, in a long stretch right. and deliver a lethal cut into it. And we suddenly understood this. Scientists suddenly began to understand this and began to realize that, wait a second, if you readapt this, if you engineer or re-engineer this bacterial technology, you can suddenly produce cuts or mutations in the human genome Deliberately, at will. So again, I'm trying to give us the
0: cast of characters that we need for the drama that, that you argue that we feel we're playing out right now. Okay. That was not a drama from ten years ago. Right. So we can now go in and
1: at will, digitally, as it were, edit any element of the drama. Right. Much it like all. you can pick out a volume Very of cool. the encyclopedia, chop okay. up one piece, replace that word with a different word. Character. Now one. you could say, well, w- let, yep. let me just finish yep. up one more thought. Yeah. It's helpful. Yep. You could say, well, who cares? Uh huh. Well, what if that character was the difference between a normal version of the BRCA1 gene, BRCA1 gene, and the gene that causes breast cancer? If you know that if you inherit copies, two copies of that BRCA1 gene, your chance of getting breast cancer in your lifetime was 80%. Mm -hmm. That's where it begins to matter. What if that was that volume 7, page 19, was the sequence of the cystic fibrosis gene? or a gene that carried a 100% chance of giving you Huntington's disease. All of a sudden, this business of editing the human genome, rubbing out ACTG and making it ATTG, becomes extremely consequential because you're dictating the fate of a child, an unborn child potentially, who has a risk of breast cancer or Huntington's disease, and deciding that I'm going to erase that and replace it with something new. Keep that thought.
0: So then pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, I think, has been around for a little while. You, you look at the embryo before it's implanted and you check it out. And if it's got certain things you don't want, then you don't put it in. And if it hasn't got none of the things you don't want, so, you do
1: put it in, roughly. Roughly speaking. So if you think of CRISPR as writing, because you're, you're erasing things and replacing it with new code so you can write the human genome, you can think about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis as reading the human genome. Why does that make sense? Again, going back to our simple analogy, you have your encyclopedia, and all of a sudden you decide, you know that, again, to press the point, in Volume 7, there is a code that tells you, A-T-T-G-C, that tells you that your child will have a heightened risk for breast cancer. And now, instead of using CRISPR or any other new fancy technology, you say, what if I could detect that in a fetus Mm -hmm. or in a... Before a fetus is implanted, and I just won't implant that fetus. I just read the genome, the entirety of the genome, and I say I just decided I'm going to not decide. I'm going to not, I'm going to decide not to implant that genome. Yep. That right. genome.
0: And implantation is kind of in the context of of uh, artificial insemination of, of right. in vitro fertilization. But you could imagine doing that potentially for a for a fetus that was conceived naturally. That's as well. right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Okay. Cool. So now with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis you can basically subtract information from your lineage. You could say that of all the sets of encyclopedias that I could potentially carry forward into the next generation, I'm going to choose only this one, and I'm going to eliminate all the other ones. And in doing so, you would eliminate certain words which were in certain sets. Does that make sense? It's kind of obvious. So it's a subtractive technique. Epigenetics is a... Layer of information, it's a very controversial topic.
0: Okay.
1: Epigenetics is a layer of information that is... So the genome, every cell in your body inherits the same genome, give or take. Okay. So in
0: that sense, we think of the genome for an individual as kind of being fixed. It's, it, there was this kind of swapping aroundy thing with the sperm and the egg, and then you get your genome, and that's your genome, and there you go. That's right. Yeah.
1: However, a red blood cell looks totally different from a neuron. Mm -hmm. If they were to exchange their properties, your body would go mad, right? You would not have any body. Mm -hmm. So something must be telling the genome to use different genes in different contexts and allow certain genes to be activated in their neurons, certain genes to be activated in your blood cells, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. In the broadest sense, epigenetics refers to the idea that human beings, when they evolve, when they when cells arise from human beings and they become acquire different identities, that different parts of the human genomes are activated and inactivated differently. Mm-hmm. Now, how does this happen? It happens through a variety of processes. One thing, the biggest thing, is particular proteins come and tell genes in your brain cells to turn on certain sets of genes and turn off other sets of genes. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the biggest process that happens. Mm-hmm. Other processes that are more controversial that also happen is that the genome, once it's activated certain genes and inactivated certain other genes in your brain cell versus your blood cells, it also attaches chemical tags or physical tags to the genome. And whether those impact or don't impact the way that genes are changed in your, is, is very controversial. And controversial to the extent that you've actually, I mean you've got slammed for talking about this in some ways and, but controversy is
0: interesting, again, for those of us outside the domain. Is that something which people do argue about within It's a huge thing? argument. Why, it has why a, so much passion?
1: There's a, the consequence of that is that people argue about where, how genes are regulated. Mm-hmm. How are genes? There's a paper today that actually even addresses this controversy. It turns out that these master regulatory proteins, so-called transcription factors, are not autonomous. We're learning about them more and more every day. Yesterday, there was a paper which showed that if you eliminate those, if you just fiddle with those chemical marks, you can turn genes on and off Mm -hmm. autonomously. So there's a lot of passion about this because, so far, we have not been able to turn genes on and off in certain cells at will. That's why it matters. Could you change a neuron into a, uh, into a blood cell? Mm-hmm. It's not so easy to do, even though they have exactly the same genome. Could you turn a degenerating cell, a cell that's dying, into a cell that comes alive and lives forever? Not so easy to do. They both have the same genome. So what makes the difference between one and the other? Well, It's that layer of information about the genome. It's clear that these master regulatory proteins have a big role in this. The question is whether, you know, these chemical tags and physical tags have any role, because, in fact we can t- toggle those much more easily. Okay.
0: So, look, I want to do a quick gear change now. And, and you know, in my head, it's, it, the, the fact of your being a Pulitzer Prize-winning author is very interesting to me. And I'm someone also who's been interested in straddling the divide that we talk about the two cultures, the art and science thing. And those of you that will have heard of the two cultures will probably know that it comes down to a bloke called C.P. Snow, uh, who argued of these two cultures. And I think the way in our society that's thought of is about scientists and artists being different, hanging out in different clubs, talking in different ways. But C.P. Snow, it turns out, wasn't too concerned with uh, culture in the sense that we talked about now. But he was involved in the immediate post-Second World War period in the nuclear age. Yes. So he was very concerned about atomic power uh, and nuclear weapons. Yes. And the concern that he had was that politicians, particularly and the public, not being scientifically literate, would make it impossible for them to make decisions about the application of that age of nuclear technology which was in his view the biggest uh, moral and ethical concern of his age and could result in the annihilation of our species you write in your book about a letter that einstein produced to roosevelt where he said we have all the pieces this was in uh, before the bomb was made we have all the pieces necessary to create a bomb and and suggesting that roosevelt ought to sit up and take notice and i wonder you know how exercised are you about Public knowledge of these domains, and, and what are the things that you think we should be worried about now, resulting from these recent advances in technology, that will affect us, our children, you know, and where decisions need to be made by, Is it governments, is it the, the UN? Don't know what. So give, give us a couple of vignettes, if you would, Look, of the, the big uh, you issues know, right now. Uh,
1: let me begin that with a question it's a thought experiment. Let let me begin that with a question that I'm going to throw out to the audience, and I'm going to ask the audience to think about. Let's say you have um, two daughters. And let's say we could predict with a 10% chance the daughters are healthy, they're growing, they're 11 and 6 years old. And let's say you could predict with a 10% fidelity in one daughter, that she would develop the risk of being schizophrenic by the time she was 20 years old. They're perfectly fine now. Would it change the way you think about your two daughters? Hmm. Right. Let's say I increase the number to 50%, the 50% chance that she would develop some other illness, lethal potential illness, debilitating illness, by the time she was 20 or 30. Would it change the way you think about your two daughters? Yes. Now, here's the second question. If it was 10% chance, if it was that 10% chance, would you want to know? No. No. No.
0: Yes. No. (laughs) For those of you in the podcast world, we've had some yeses and some noes from the audience. Right?
1: If it was a 78% chance, would you want to know? Yes. Right? This is the world that we are going to enter. Our children. This will be one of, it may not be the most, it will be one of the most important questions that a future generation will, ha- will be asking itself. Our generation is already asking itself. You know, why is it that at 75% risk, they're perfectly healthy now, why is it at 75% risk you want to know, whereas at 10% risk you don't want to know? What is it about? I mean, the answer is kind of obvious. Oh, so you know, the risk increases. We want to be sure about the future. But what makes that difference? Now, one more thing before we come out. And, I mean, I can, I, you're kind of freaking everyone out a little bit here with the whole
0: side thing and, 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 and the disease stuff. So let me ask you to do uh, <laughs> a little bit on the positive side, if I may. And yes. I'm not being Pollyannaish here. Um, what are the kinds of things which we might be looking
1: to this technology to allow us to do that are better? And, and, that and are how about many are there? Yeah. Every... Most of of the new vaccines that you're getting are the result of genetic technologies. Not all of them, but many of the new vaccines that that prevent tremendously debilitating diseases around the world are the product of new genetic technologies. Um, The idea that you could eliminate um, parasitic diseases by changing the animals that carry parasitic diseases, mosquitoes, for instance, is a genetic technology... Most of us who've undergone therapy for breast cancer or for leukemia or for lymphoma are beneficiaries of genetic technology. Most of us who've undergone screening for breast cancer because there is a breast cancer gene in our family and thereby caught early cancers are the children, as it were, of genetic technologies. The idea that you can diagnose cystic fibrosis and potentially um, prevent... Um, having uh, decide not to have a child even though you and your spouse may both carry the one of the genes for cystic fibrosis is the product of genetic technologies and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Tay-Sachs disease. The decision not to bear a child and it's a personal decision To ha- with Down syndrome. that's a personal decision. If you, you indulge in that decision, if you made that decision, you've already be- become part of this Genetic technology. You know, it's very interesting. You raise know, your hands. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. this is an interesting question. Please. Raise your hands if you have thought about or actually performed an amniocentesis to look at whether your child may or may not have had Down syndrome or know someone. So this, we've already, we've already entered. People, yeah. We have already entered. For all of you yep. and your families, you've already entered the genetic age. It's not far away from you. You've already entered it.
0: It's interesting that in your book you, you, you quote an, uh, a, a, a description which I hadn't heard before, which I think is rather lovely, the chapter about um, through the looking glass, so the Alice in Wonderland thing. And I suppose you still sound to me as if you're talking like a doctor because the, when I ask you for some positive stuff, you talk about all these diseases we might not have anymore, right? Ultimately putting doctors out of business. But again, before I come, which is, you know, it, it's a grim prospect clearly for you, but the, the, um, the, the, I, I wonder whether there are things outside of disease and medicine Which we ought to be thinking about in terms of enhancement. We jokingly referred to five hands before. Is this the time to be thinking about uh, improving ourselves beyond simply the avoidance of pain and disease, in your view?
1: It's hard for me to imagine, as a physician, particularly. I mean, you know, that's my practice, my day to day life. Mm -hmm. I find it hard to imagine doing that without violating certain things that we know about human beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that problems we have enough. Right. That to imagine enhancement beyond problems seems to be a second-order question. Mm-hmm. It would be a kind of 2.0 question. Um, and I find it hard to imagine that given what we know about genes, given what we fundamentally know about genes, that they don't usually act as widget-makers. It's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. You know, people used to think in the 1950s, maybe, that genes were widget-makers. It was like a, a blueprint. Mm-hmm. In other words, that you... Had a blueprint, much like a blueprint. You know, you read a blueprint and it says, you know, three centimeters above the axle, place a nut and a screw, mm-hmm. and tighten it. And when you made your device, three centimeters above the thing, you would place your nut and a screw and you tighten it. That's a blueprint. Genes, generally speaking, are more like recipes. So, in other words, and you finally bake a cake. You can't say, well, three centimeters above the raisin, <laughs> on the far left-hand corner, there was a specification for putting a second raisin.
0: <laughs> right? Clearly, not a fan of the Great British Bake Off here. But yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. So yeah.
1: genes interact. So, in other words, the way a cake happens is that you put a whole bunch of things together they, in a particular temperature in a particular context. <clears throat> excuse me. And you end up getting a process mm-hmm. which is ultimately results in a cake. Genes mostly behave like that. And because of that reason, you can't say, pluck the raisin out of that, and all of a sudden you'll have everything else left the same. Whereas you can do that with a widget, right? So my fear is that as far as enhancement is concerned, we know so little right now about the developmental cascades of what results in a human being that ultimately we'll end up screwing up the recipe in more fundamental ways. And just to finish that example, we will say, add one-tenth of the butter to the cake, as it were, but you know that if you add one-tenth of the butter, you don't get a one-tenth butter cake. Right. You get no cake. You get a collapsed mess, right? <laughs> and so that's the analogy helps mm. us to realize that process-oriented things that are developmental or neurodevelopmental or biodevelopmental cascades, it's generally harder to intervene on them without having many, many unintended consequences. We've seen that happen before. Um, uh,
0: questions, comments? Now, we'll do it with microphones. Please make yourselves visible in some way by waving something. Uh, we'll take them in batches, folks. And also, just them it's not necessarily the case that we will answer in detail everything that's raised. It's as much to hear from you as to assuage your concerns. Please, if you have a, a consultation, the doctor is not in. So please do not bring your, your, your personal or family medical problems to the fore at this stage. Uh, yes, there's a wave over there. Let's, let's try that. Sir? Um, in your personal opinion, should we wipe out the Anopheles mosquito? Ooh. is that the what's that one? That's the one that's doing what?
1: Uh, malaria and oh, that one. Of other yeah, ones. yeah, mosquitoes—an interesting question. Um, actually, I have a conversation with of all people, Bill Gates, which is coming out. You can find it in YouTube, maybe early next month. Uh, he reviewed the gene, um, and the mosquitoes. Uh, uh, so I, I read a lot uh, to prep for this conversation. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and as you know, I, I actually don't I go into great de- with Bill Gates, exactly. Exactly. I don't go into great detail about GMOs in this book because it would really require a new book, a separate book. And I think it's an important book to write. Um, someone else should write it. But um, <laughs> um, mosquitoes, are, I'm told, as I understand it, particularly the Anopheles, is a very unique uh, situation where, when ecologists and other entomologists, insect people, have looked to ask the question, is the mosquito useful? Um, People have come up with the answer, no, not really. (laughs) You can't find any use for the mosquito. It's not a keystone species. It's not required for the survival of another species. It is an unusual situation where this animal has really learned to parasitize, uh, or I should say feed on um, mammals, and um, carry forward um, diseases that are very devastating to um, humans and other animals. So in in the unusual case, and I think it's a very unusual case, in the unusual case of the Anopheles mosquito, or perhaps even the Zika-carrying um, Aedes aegypti, um, it would be the rare circumstance where you could make the case for genetically modifying um, organisms where, and, and not have a... a Unintended impact on ecology so widespread that we would never be able to recover. So, we
0: could do it with like really powerful, um, you know, bug spray or swatters or something, but is there a genetic solution to that?
1: You know, does does this
0: come under the kind of things that give you pause? That's correct. In fact,
1: uh, there's some debate, a lot lot of controversy about this. In fact, you know, I had a conversation with people who are reading this, until recently there was not a lot of evidence that bug sprays, et cetera, spraying worked at all. Okay. In fact, most of those were negative. So if we've run out of those kinds of solutions, the genetic solution would be to equip maybe the female or the male mosquito, it doesn't matter depending on how you want to do it, with some gene that basically renders their offspring sterile. Um, so that you would basically have a dead lineage yep. every time that mosquito reproduces. You'd release these mosquitoes. They're marked, as you know, as you may know, they're marked with a jellyfish gene that makes them glow red. Um, they're not visible normally, but under the microscope you can figure out, as the population is changing, you could trap them and watch the population change. Uh, you could give them, you could equip these mosquitoes with a little extra drive yep. so that they reproduce a little bit faster and so <laughs> forth. Um, Um, and uh, this is a, a people have, very, very thoughtful people have thought about doing exactly this to eradicate malaria. Whether it works or not is a question, what its unintended consequences are is a question. Malaria is a terrible disease. Dengue is, I had dengue, I was in bed for three months. It's a terrible disease. Um, So these are are not to be taken lightly. Um, uh, There's one up there, I believe. Am I right in thinking that?
0: Hi, thank you for your your talk so far it's been very illuminating Um, you spoke about eugenics for for a little while but I wanted to ask you what your opinion is where you draw the line because some genes such as sickle cell anemia um, which is an awful disease that um, affects a lot of people in particularly Africa also confers a um, a protection against malaria and as we've been talking about that's um, a big problem and so where do you draw the line with which genes you would go to um, protect against and mm-hmm. which you wouldn't and how would you then go about um, informing or recommending a course of treatment to a patient
1: yeah Very nice. the story of sickle cell gene, disease and actually it's in the book is, is an informative story because you could ask the question well why on earth do we have sickle cell anemia and part of the answer which has come out from a from evolutionary scientists is that it turns out, we think now that having, particularly having one allele or one gene of, or carrying one variant of that sickle cell gene may protect you from malaria. Um, Whereas having, you know, of course it also sets your children up for having the risk of the disease. So, Similarly, people have asked the question, well, why, is there, why does a cystic fibrosis mutation even exist in human populations? Well, again, in that case, there's a thought that having one, one allele of that cystic fibrosis gene, when you have two of them, of course, you have the disease, but having one protects against lethal infections of cholera and other kinds of abdominal... but uh, listen,
0: swear, In answering this question, I do think the question has posed it in an interesting way. So she said, you decide, and then she referred to you as a clinician. Yeah. What would you recommend as a course of treatment? But I think this is tricky, right? So what you've done is you've answered with a just-so story, yeah. um, Roger two Kipling, about stories, two just-so yeah. stories in a row. And uh, depending on how convincing we find those just-so stories about whether they a good mutation or a bad mutation, we might consider excising it or not
1: is this really a satisfactory procedure for deciding the things that we are or aren't going to do with this technology? No, I think the more satisfactory procedure for dealing with this technology is to ask the question, do we need to make a a, um, germline? So I have to to explain two words (laughs) that are relevant here. There are two ways to alter genes. One way to alter genes is to alter them such that you change them in the sperm and eggs, and therefore it becomes permanently imprinted in the human genome. And every generation thereby to come in the Mm -hmm. future will carry that genetic change. That's called germline gene changes, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Another way to change the human genome is to say, okay, I'm not going to do this in the germline. I'm only going to affect the cells that are affected. So in sickle cell, it would just be the blood cells that are affected. So in fact, if you were to think about it, for diseases like sickle cell, the much, much simpler solution, technically, technologically, and perhaps even ethically, is to say that we're going to make the change in the blood cells alone. You have the luxury of doing that in that particular disease, in sickle cell anemia, and I'm going to concentrate my efforts. I'm going to largely concentrate my efforts on changing blood cells so that the patient with sickle cell anemia now carries sickle cell anemia, as it were, in his or her body, except in the cells that are most severely affected, and that's in blood not, you could say, well, that's a weasley solution. Well, it's
0: weasley so in the sense that you're limiting the, uh, the consequences of the decision, but you're not addressing the question of which things you would do and which things you wouldn't do that's in the right. first place. That's right.
1: But th- it's important to recognize that these, we- these weasley solutions are probably the most practical <clears throat> solutions. Right. So yeah. that's what we would do first. That's what I think we should do first. Yeah. The second question, should we eliminate the sickle cell gene, the mutant sickle cell gene, completely right. so it from the human the generation genome, from, from the human that. genome? I don't know the answer. Yeah. I don't know... In the book, uh, uh, what I do describe, what we know historically, is that there's a kind of triangle, as it were, um, of forces that have allowed us to make these decisions. And it's important to note the the realms of that triangle. One is that the disease should cause extraordinary suffering in in being inherited through the germline. Mm -hmm. Number two, that that we understand as clearly as we, can, as we can possibly can that actually changing that gene will have a one-to-one relationship with what ultimately happens and not affect the whole, right. so that we don't have all these potentially unintended consequences of eliminating malaria and finding that something awful has happened as a consequence mm-hmm. of that. So we have... And one way of saying this is also to say that, these, that the penetrance our understanding that the gene will actually exert its effects in a one-to-one manner is very high, number two. And number three is that we know from the history, now I'm talking more historically as opposed to biologically, that we know that mandating any of these choices is a terrible idea, particularly mandating it from the state. When states mandate this, they make terrible choices, so it's generally better to leave these decisions to individuals. They may choose or not choose to have... um, a child with a, with a potentially devastating medical condition, they may choose to have that child. But mandating it at any point of time is... is so so this is a generally safe triangle. Um, with sickle cell disease, we have other solutions. Uh, we have other potentials. So it doesn't really fit in that triangle. Okay. As it works. Very good. Um, yeah, for somewhere
0: there, I'll take a batch more. So if there are any others, we'll go. Yes, sir, or whoever it is. Where are um, you? Oh, hello. So do you think doctors should be the gatekeepers to the human genome because mm. there are commercial... Um, human genome kits, where you can kind of carry out a test on yourself and it gives you results which may not be accurate. But given that it is your own information, shouldn't you have access to it without someone else? Yeah, should doctors be gatekeepers like that? Uh, Over there. Hi. um, Hi, Dr. Mukherjee. Um, I was just wondering where you think the future of genetics is going in terms of microbiology, because I know that so far it's, it's seen as less powerful to actually go ahead and kill bacteria but more powerful to inactivate genes that cause virulence. And I was just wondering if you think this is something that the bacteria would eventually evade or if there's a future for it. So, yeah, so you're going to put the microbiologists out of business. <laughs> and, and I'm delighted to say another um, view from the gods. Yes. All right, so basically we have been talking about how CRISPR and using the genome can be used to eradicate disease. But what do you think about producing, like, designer babies? Uh-huh. If a consumer wants to create their child to have, say, a fast metabolism so they can't be as fat, you know... Mm-hmm. Or change the eye colour or hair colour. Should that be allowed, or should you kind of keep a lock on that? Because then it could be a slippery slope, and who knows exactly. Okay. Right. So, should we park microbiology? We want to do that one quickly. Um, let's come to microbiology okay, later cool. because these so two, the, yeah, these two are, are kind of related. related. So, should, yeah. should you guys be the gatekeepers? Should you know who, who here has done? Who here's sent off for a genetic test out of interest? Who, if you've sent off for twenty-three andMe or one of them online, other products do exist. Uh, put your hands up. So wow, we got like less than ten percent of you. Than 10%. Well, you didn't need to because you're in a. Actually, I decided not. To. Okay, cool. All right. So, should we have access to it, and should we be um, modifying?
1: So the quick answer is that right now these technologies, especially the sequencing technology, is easy. That's the easy part. Reading A C T G C T T C is very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's How a much does it cost
0: right now? I mean, if, in your lab, to, if you want to
1: send one so off. So if I want to do the entire human, the active part of a human genome, it's about $1,200. $1,200. Yeah. 23 yeah. nice. uh, and Me has does some subparts of it yeah. for even cheaper, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, right. you give or take. Yeah. Uh, the first genome, by the way, uh, cost about $3 Yeah, the full genome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the even faster genome. than
0: Moore's Law, isn't it, in terms exactly of the right. reduction? Exactly yeah. right. So, okay.
1: okay, so that's the, the background. The problem is not that. The problem is not sequencing. Getting sequence is easy. It, the, the analogy is, you know, if you put your child and you put them in front of a book, right, and at age three, that child can say, that's the letter A, that's the letter C, that's a letter Q, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera they would have not one bit of understanding of what those sequence of letters meant. They wouldn't know, therefore, what the plot of the book was, what the moral of the story is, what the lesson is, mm-hmm. and what the historical context of interpreting that lesson is. So we are sort of like the children who are reading, a in, in our case, A, C, T, and G. And occasionally we can make out this combination of letters means that. But that our vocabulary for that has about six or seven words. And there's a big... You know, there's, king, there's Richard III sitting in front of us. So you can read the word that. You can read the word king. You can read the word, you know, clown. And now you're asked to say to yourself, do you understand the significance of this play? Right? That's where most of the technology is sitting right now. It's, it's at the toolkit stage. So for me in particular, and I have a, very, a great incentive to do this. I wanted to know... Um, is there a risk for me or for my children to have an increased risk of a a mental illness? Um, It just wasn't there. We don't know what that will be, and chances are it will be when we come to it, it will be probabilistic. It will be that kind of situation, 10% risk, 12% risk. It has to do something with the environment. Some component of the environment has to be sort of factored in as well. So, so you advise people not to use these? I mean, you know, it's whatever, you're not going to tell I, me what to do, but you, you think it should still
0: come, be coming through a medical gatekeeper?
1: I think it should be... I think that it should be done preferably on a trial basis. It should be done in a way that information is recorded and sent back, so in a way it's useful. It doesn't become a kind of free-for-all. I think the information is helpful when you do have a notable family history of a disease. That's when it becomes useful. But in, in my case, with most chronic diseases, whether you know that there's not one gene and the genes haven't been identified, for me right now, does not is not useful at this point in time.
0: Precisely, you come you come across quite um, in contemporary politics quite nanny statey, right? I mean, you, you do think that this stuff should be regulated and controlled or, or moderated in some central way, right? I mean, that,
1: that's that's that, that's what if that's your the suggestion. definition of a nanny state. Mm-hmm then yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's the definition of a nanny state that we should not be making viruses carrying human oncogenes, yes, that's the nanny state that I want. Absolutely. But, but that, is a, that, is, that is not the standard definition of a, na- of a okay. nanny state. Pardon. In other words, the, if, if the definition of a nanny state is to help us police and understand the outer limits of dangerous biological interventions that have the capacity to erode our culture that we have spent so much time investing and creating, sure, that's the nanny state I want.
0: (laughs) Very good. Uh, Any more from any more? Yes, ma'am. So, good evening. My question is sort of medical half-ethical. We have a friend who is in the middle of a Huntington's discussion. Yes. Now, obviously, that is binary. You either do or don't.
1: Well, what do you mean, is, what is binary? Is that, is that, you are they, they being tested or well, not I tested? Mean,
0: no, if you're you tested, you either have it the gene or you don't. Yes, okay. So the problem is, if they are tested, they then have to report it from an insurance point of view. Okay. So there is no motivation to actually ask the question. Now, does at what point, in terms of the genetic research, do I not want to know, because it is going to potentially affect my access to medical care later
1: on in life? Yeah, it's a That's a very important good question. question. Good. And, and, um, and I, I,
0: I'm going to... Yeah, we'll go, we'll go straight on that one. Yeah, go. So, yeah.
1: so, so right now, as you know, um, in the United States, if you get tested outside, if you're not asked to be tested, your decision to reveal that information is, your, is a private decision. In fact, even if you were to be tested for BRCA1 or BRCA1, uh, etc., your decision not to reveal or reveal that information is a private decision. And if we are to continue our current insurance system, and there's a big if there, we can talk about that separately, it seems to me that that decision should be left private. Otherwise, we will divide the world into different medical classes, and the whole point of insurance will begin to collapse. The whole point of insurance is to combine risk in a way that allows you to combine risk before information is available, combined risk or pool risk such that if you were in a people who read roles uh, would be familiar with this that the whole point of insurance occurs before the veil or or while the veil of ignorance still exists So, if we
0: all knew when we were going to die there would be no market
1: for life insurance, that's right. right if we all knew exactly when we were going to die we were we would not have any mechanism of having life insurance because of course you would know when and the premiums would change based on that now The other question that you could be asking, and you have asked implicitly in your question is, does the new form of understanding genetics force us to rethink insurance? Should the person with Huntington's disease be pooled with someone else who has another lethal disease or someone else who has Huntington's disease? That's a decision that genetics will never solve for you. It will only give you information about what the relative life expectancy or risk is for an individual um, individual who has that illness or disease. The questions of how we choose to insure each other is a question that comes from social uh, contract building. And social contract building is a decision that is a political and humanistic decision. We have decided to build social contracts <clears throat> around things like insurance because we believe at a fundamental level that all human beings come with a... Uh, a level playing ground of risk and that should one acquire greater risk then the pool of monies that enter that, that pool should be deployed to help you through that period of risk.
0: I'm loving the idea of life insurance as being the bit where we know
1: we're getting metaphysical when it comes down to life insurance. Sure. So the question that I would pull, pull out is that as we get deeper and deeper medical information? And this is actually a very relevant question. The gene APOE4, for instance, has, a power, has powerful risks associated with it for disease. Should, we, should the insurance companies be asked to then divide human beings into two classes of those that carry the gene and don't carry the gene and therefore have two different premiums attached to it? That would overturn the way we've thought about insurance for the history of insurance. Yes. Okay for your talk so uh, as you said in the US genetic screening is getting cheaper and then you have all the direct to consumer genetic testing companies so you send your saliva they send you all these predispositions 23 mm-hmm. all, the, all the serious diseases cancer predisposition and so on so is this information overwhelming or empowering and also which are the implications when a private company technically owns your genetic information um, Going back to the insurance companies, well, in Canada, there is no law uh, to prevent genetic discrimination. So what happens when a private company owns it? Yeah,
0: So, um, right... I should say, in the history, I mean, just to to give the historical context, this thing has been... This question has been very alive from the beginning of the Human Genome Project, hasn't it, when there was a battle around that? Does does this
1: give you pause? So, you know, who who owns that information? The answer is, well... um, And what happens when private companies own the information? Mm -hmm. The... The answer of course is that you know companies like 23 and me have have been very uh, with great alacrity have have told their consumers that the information will never be released that they are under no obligation whatsoever to release it to an insurer so in other words you you're an insurance company you're Blue Cross Blue Shield you cannot call up 23 and me and say can you tell me whether you have happened to have a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. You cannot do that. 23andMe has no obligation. And if it were to be asked, um, it will fight a legal battle and it will win that legal battle, as far as we
0: can Never tell. mind hacking
1: iCloud for nude photos. Let's hack the gene companies and work out So that has actually been raised. That question has been raised. What mm. if they get hacked? Yeah. Um, and now start releasing information, mm. and that information becomes public. It's mm. an important concern. I mean, you're hacking Yahoo. You can mm. certainly hack any of the servers. Mm. There have been now all sorts of New mechanisms, most of these private uh, the consumer companies have new mechanisms to, con- to um, anonymize and so that you can 't just decode and attach it mm-hmm. you know it, as you know these can be broken okay. um, well they do the product, yeah, yeah they, they can be broken and have been broken by other companies in the past it 's a new moral sphere um, that we don 't know how to how to deal with um, th- Look, in principle, do I have a problem with private companies owning genetic information? No. If it's secure, if it's anonymized, if it's carefully curated, no. The question is that this information right now is still in a readability phase. We're still learning how to read it. Um, For the most part, you know, you get information about certain disease risks. You get very good information about ancestry. If you're interested in ancestry, that's a great use. If you're dying to know what your ancestry is, that's a great use. In terms of predicting future risk of disease um, from your g- genome, even the most advanced um, genetic centers are struggling to do this for reasons we, had, we told you already. Number one is usually most human diseases are not the product of one gene but many genes. And number two, there's a rich role of environment and chance interacting or intersecting with genes that governs these kinds of um, decisions ultimately. So I think the the chance that from a privately owned company that you will suddenly get information that's valuable to your future health, not your ancestry, still remains in its real infancy. Very good. So look, I'm I'm delighted to say that Sid's going to be signing books
0: in the foyer outside afterwards. My name is Daniel Glazer. Please do look us up at Science Gallery London. And in the meantime, join with me in thanking our speaker, Siddhartha Mukherjee. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.